Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Mike McPeak, and with me today is Julie Keel. Hello. And Jeff Sire. Hello, everybody. And today we're going to do the sci-fi version, not the book version, of The Expanse. So with that, we'll start with the the, uh, synopsis of the story. 200 years in the future, in a fully colonized solar system, police detective Joseph Miller, born in the asteroid belt, is given the assignment to find a missing young woman, Julie Mao. Meanwhile, James Holden, the first officer of an ice freighter, is witness to an unprovoked attack upon the ship by attack craft believed to be from Mars, MCRN uh, Federation. As news the attack spreads throughout the system, the incidents flow on, threatens to destabilize an already tenuous relationship between Earth, Mars, and the belt. Far away from the struggles in deep space on Earth, Christian Avasalara, a powerful United Nations executive and diplomat, works to prevent war between Earth and Mars by any means at her disposal. Soon the three find out that the missing woman and the ice freighter's fate are a a part of a vast conspiracy that threatens humanity. Yeah, that was a mouthful, but it and you know it it sort of synopsizes the first season, but it I don't think it really does it justice. But um, you know, as I was watching this, I kind of thought of two other shows while uh, two other of our episodes that we've done while watching this. First one was um, Proxima because we have the same sort of world. We have Earth, Mars, and the asteroid belt there. Now, if I remember right, in uh, Proxima, the asteroid belt was controlled by Mars, wasn't it? I think so. I don't think it was its own yeah, separate it thing. Right. So here the asteroid belt is kind of on its own. And the kind of the parallel I kind of drew here was, I don't know if it's exactly accurate, but it made me think of, uh, think colonial America, where you have um, England and France, the two superpowers, and you have this struggling little thing called America over here, the colony, you know, trying to struggle to be on its own. And, uh, you know, you see all the things going on. That's kind of the way I felt, because the asteroid uh the belters, as they're called, are struggling. I mean, they're they they're independent, but they're struggling. They don't get a lot of respect. Um, I think both countries want to control them, uh, and I just saw some parallels there about you know the uh, colonization and the struggle for independence and right. uh, you know things like that. And it's all about the resources. The actual yes. colonization of it is secondary to just give me all your resources. Yeah. Well, that's basically why they, we came to America, too, is, uh, right. you know, we had uh, all these new wonderful resources to be exploited. Um, and then the other thing that kind of uh, uh, drew to mind was when we were uh, talking about dark matter. I called that an onion show, where you, you peel back a layer and there's another layer there. This, uh, the expanse is more like a chess game. Um, it starts out a little slow because you have to maneuver your pieces and get them all in place there. Uh, but then once it starts, it starts to get interesting. And, and unlike uh, or, or like a chess game, you have pawns, and sometimes pawns will be sacrificed. And, hey, I like that pawn. Oh, darn, they're dead. <laughs> and I'm going to argue it did not start slow, but it started incomplete. You couldn't see the yes. whole board at the beginning. Right. It did not start slow. This thing literally started with a bang. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay, maybe confusion is. Yeah, the, uh, I think. Yep, it's it. You you did not see the full game, and honestly, even at the end of season one, I don't know that we see the full game. But um, yeah, this thing, this this show. Okay, just you know, <laughs> go siffy because between dark matter and the expanse, bring it more like this, please. 
Um, but yeah, this was one where you watched one episode and it's like, holy crap, give me more now, you know. Um, and so you know, I actually didn't, I knew about it when it was, you know, showing on air. Um, and I, I kind of was paying attention to it, knew I should be watching it, but I just got caught up in other things. Um, so when it, you know, finally the whole season was released, it was like, okay, binge watch this thing. And yeah, that's not a bad way to do it. <laughs> well, it really you... is. Uh, it's so there's such a depth to this story. Um, it, the two guys that wrote the books, uh, they started out doing this as a background for to make a video game to make a uh, MMO RPG. And so they just, I guess the first five years that they worked on it, they just did background. They didn't even have a story. They just did the history. And so everything in it makes sense. Everything hangs together. And then they they created this world, and then they wrote a story on top of it. So there is there's a – and they yeah. take so much work to do just these little things like uh, – did you guys see notice when they were pouring the one drink on the station? Yep. Yes. <laughs> and that's like uh that's like Cory because they have a uh, series station has spin gravity, it doesn't have mass gravity. And uh so as a result, uh I think he's mixed a martini or something or he's or he's pouring water, I think maybe. Yeah. But he's pouring water out of a pitcher into a glass and it goes on about a 45 degree angle through the air and then into the glass because they're under spin gravity and it's the water as it falls is subject to the Coriolis effect rather than like on earth it would fall straight towards the ground because they're under spin gravity it uh, the water falls at an angle. That's... And it's just little things like that that you know, they it... Paying so much attention to, and this show. I mean, a lot of it. At least I, you know, I picked it up off iTunes, and there was a, a brief little. I, I oftentimes don't like to watch the the trailers or the making of or the commentary after the episode because for me it often you know pulls you out of the show. Um, but this one I found to be pretty short and sweet, and they really didn't, you know, spoil it for me. But they did, you know, show a little bit about how they filmed some of this. And, you know, thumbs up to Hollywood or whoever, because they, they've gotten really good at filming zero-G. Um, the the zero-G scenes in this are completely believable, and it's all green screen and wires. But um, the, the the amount of detail that's gone into like the ships and the backgrounds and the technology and the the environment and the society and the economy and the political i mean j- yeah like you're saying jeff it's just layer after layer after layer that obviously they've put thought like years of thought into um which means it could go on for you know ages this i realize there is a series of books i think there's depends on how you cut them three to five books um, on there too so it is a uh, more complete story and yes season two is on its way but um, this and this universe is ripe for just you know continuing story after story 
Well, and yeah. I did. I was looking at stuff here on IMDb, and I see that it was nominated for, um, or has received a nomination for best television sci-fi series. So uh, people do realize that this is a good show. So I, we, as long as the story holds together, and, and like I say, it, and um, I have read the books, but I've heard enough people talk that I realize that the books and the TV show. Uh, they live like in kind of parallel universes. They don't exactly follow each other, but they kind of get to the same destination, just doing it a different way. Right, and I do understand that there are some differences between the books and the show. For instance, some characters appear in the show much earlier than they do in the books. Um, yeah. But that's what happens when you take books and turn it into a show. So, you know, whatever. But in, in, in one way... <laughs> um, when you see, like, Avasarala is in the the first season of the TV show, which covers the first book, and you don't meet her until the second book. Right. But she doesn't, you don't see her, crap. <laughs> Busted. Yeah. Uh, I'll just let that ring, because I can't get it. But, but she, at least you, for season one in the show, is critical. Yeah, but... You don't. What I was going to say is, you don't see her do any of the things that she does in the second book, because the the books are written kind of like a, along a timeline, and you just don't meet her until further in the story. So the things that you're seeing her do in that first season are not covered in any of the books. You're just seeing; they're just showing you kind of like what that character was doing in when the events of the first book were going on. Mm, okay. So it's I found that really interesting because a lot of times um, when they do something like that when you when you see a character that uh, you wouldn't meet later in you know, when they're trans translating it to a movie from uh, from a book they're just showing you the scenes that you see later um, earlier than you would have and right. they're not doing that here they're they're showing you that character in a completely different setting that you never saw in the book so there's actually backstory yeah. that doesn't even exist in the books Ex exactly yeah i found that so interesting yeah that yeah. is interesting matter of fact and speaking Alice of books Arla, she's probably my favorite character like she is just such a butt kicker yeah no kidding <laughs> But at the same time, like she's so interesting because she's she's got this loving relationship with her husband, and Grand and she's kids. such a like she's the grandmother that everybody wish they wish they had. Like she's so awesome, and then she's just completely ruthless, right? As in her job in the United Nations, yeah. Like I, I found her really really interesting. Yeah, that and um, there are some. I hesitate to call them books. There are some stories available that are short stories um, that are kind of fillers that aren't necessarily part of the books that are out there. Um, there's a backstory on the the butcher of Anderson Station, um, right. and so yeah, those oh, are those which are interesting that too. that backstory that you can uh, that. It's like a short story that for the butcher of Anderson Station. Yep, they show that uh, at least parts of that in the. Um, in the first season, oh, sort of. When they show, yeah, they show they show Fred's uh, flashback to how he became the butcher. So they, they yeah, show oh, elements sort of. of that story. Yeah, sort of. The story and that flashback are two different things. The short story yeah. and the flashback are two different things. Matter of fact, the short story, I think, is critical. I think everybody should read it because it puts a whole different spin on that event. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't read that 
You've read that? Yeah, I did. Yep. Yeah. Is that the prequel that they list on yep. the, the website? Yep. Okay. Yeah, it was, like I say, it was reasonably short. It was like only 9,000 words or something. Um, but uh, having seen that flashback as part of the the, the show, you know, you kind of think you know who he is. And then you read that short story and it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not exactly the message I was getting from the TV show. So, right. yeah, there you go. Mm. But, yeah, um, oh, the, so much of this... Um, and and what's really cool from a tech perspective is this thing is dripping with tech every yeah. scene um there's so much to talk about but then again it's not about the tech um that's what makes to, you know to me that's what makes this thing phenomenal what what it's and it's not even a a people story i mean there are people whose stories are being told and we've talked about a couple of them already but it is a a you know, a bigger scale. It's it's essentially a political story, um, you know, tied in with these people in this science fiction universe. Um, so it's the 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 story takes precedence over the the science fiction and and the even to some extent the people. But what's nice about the science fiction and the tech in it is, first off, it's awesome. And secondly, it's completely consistent. There is, I, yes. I didn't see any real mulligans with the tech. Um, there was not at all. Yeah, yeah there was everything so well thought out. Yep. Too. And mo- yeah, and and many of which were quite believable. I mean, <laughs> one of my favorite pieces of this is they the smartphones have developed to you know sharp pieces of glass, um, and. One of the main characters is cracked. <laughs> so the fact that <laughs> yeah. you drop your phone and it gets cracked continues on 200 years in the future. But, you know, well, one of my fa- that is one of my favorite pieces, these little slabs of glass that are, you know, they're essentially display screens, and then you can flip it up to a tablet-sized device or literally f- with your hand wave it up to a wall. And my favorite part, you could say go to 3D and poof, it would just, you know, <laughs> pop out and you could yeah, that was the most awesome thing ever. Want, want, want. <laughs> well, you know, we, uh, we've talked on different podcasts, or I've talked on different podcasts, where it, we want that thing that it's the, uh, the one computer to rule them all, I guess is what we've kind of called it, that is it, you take it with you. It can be your cell phone. You can take it home. And, you know, we're talking about docking it, but this thing doesn't even need a dock. But uh, so it becomes your home computer, your desktop computer, for lack of a better term. Uh, uh, and it's the one – so you don't have to have multiple devices. You don't have to have a, uh, a tower at home. You don't have to have a laptop carry with you a, a tablet or whatever. You've got the one device that kind of just – morphs into whatever you need and i think that's kind of the uh, goal that everyone kind of wants for mobile computing is uh you have one thing so you don't have to manage multiple devices because that gets to be a royal pain sometimes mm-hmm. yeah and and to some extent the same information is available on every device and you know it's just the display is laid out differently okay web design it's responsive websites <laughs> anyway but yeah the and and the fact that there were the way they were being depicted in the show um you know you you carried your 
you know, phone-sized device with you pretty much constantly, but, you know, um, maybe you'd pull out the tablet-sized device when you were traveling, and, you know, you had the wall-sized device in your apartment and in pretty much any living space, you know, uh, office or whatever, you could, you know, project it up to a wall or or, uh, put it on a screen that might be available. So, yeah, that... uh, um, information everywhere uh, yeah there didn't seem to be any compatibility issues like everything could interface with everything yeah and you didn't need to like own it it wasn't like you know you could only see it on your stuff i mean you could go into somebody else's apartment and throw your stuff up on the wall or you could you know go on even into uh you know a ship now i wondered if that was because he was a cop that's possible but again at least it was a you know something that was being displayed so whether it's because he had special permissions um, maybe but I don't know yeah like again that's one of the things that I like about like they show you so many things but in some ways like it's they're just giving you the snapshot. They don't explain everything you're seeing, so no. you're left in some ways to just kind of like the thing with the uh, the water pouring. They don't they don't explain that at all. Nope. It's just something that's there, and it they looks weird. And, nothing. Yeah, there is yeah. no techno babble on this show. None. No. None. None. Well, none. Well, in a science fiction show, uh, tech like this or the science, it should be like makeup. It should draw attention without being noticed um, and just enhance you know, the beauty of the, the face or the show or whatever. Uh, so I think that does it well, that it enhances the story without a, uh, hey, look at me, or let's take you out of the moment and explain this thing here uh, moment. So um, they, they, they do it well here uh, to make you – it creates the world without you – feeling that it's foreign and you're talking about the cell phones you know if they've truly um, thought this world through i didn't see a cell phone charger anywhere so it's like that'd be awesome right yeah and the other thing too one of the obvious pieces of science i guess is the belters are all you know a good foot taller than any other um human from earth or mars uh, obviously, humans are going to, from Earth are going to be the the shortest, and Martian folks and lunar you know folks on the Moon are going to be taller. And then the Belters, um, they start to look like Harry Potter in the black um, the lake, um, where you know they got hands as big as fins and whatever. And but the, but the only time they actually did get into explaining it. Um, is one of the main characters what the heck's his name uh, Joseph Miller the the detective yep. um, he's a belter but he had some procedure done some medical thing to strengthen his bones and keep him um, a more traditional you know earthish marsish size rather than belter size that was about the only time that they you know made some sort of explanation of why he wasn't you know eight, nine feet tall well right. and, th- and then there early uh, one of the early episodes where uh, um uh, Solara is uh you know, grandma is torturing this belter, right? And they're and they're just using gravity. They got him hanging there on hooks, and um, 
trying to get the information out of them and for them to you know gravity would uh, growing up in you know either zero g or low g yeah their bones and their body aren't used to it so all they have to do is put them in a room and hang them on hooks and you know this is yeah. this is torture yeah when we say uh, hang them on that, hooks I, we're just talking yeah. about supporting them under his armpits we're not talking right. about like piercing no. his skin yeah. or anything no yeah and that guy ends up committing suicide yep by gravity yep uh, when they're taking off, everybody else is in their crash couches and can't move, and he leans forward out of his couch, and the gravity crushes him. Right. Uh, allows he allows the gravity to to crush him. Yeah, that was yeah. that was an interesting little. Well, it was a twist to the story, but it was an interesting little nod to the science too. Yeah, the um, oh, there's so much in this one. The the the, the zero just, G. Just, the spaceship travel was what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, I don't think we've ever, of anything we've done, um, have they covered, like, a, a, like we've covered stuff that's kind of like sci-fi, but in current day, which is pretty realistic, like shuttle flights and stuff like that. Right. Gravity. But I don't yeah. think we've covered anything that's in the future um, that's as realistic looking for spaceflight as this. Like, they just have constant acceleration so you're it feels like you're under normal normal earth gravity and uh, they can only accelerate so fast because the people inside would or the things would be crushed and yeah like like everything in their space flight is all acceleration so they, they'll accelerate if it's going to take them a month to get to jupiter they'll accelerate for the first half of the trip and then at the midway point they'll have a, a you know one hour of weightlessness while the ship flips around to face the other way and then they'll decelerate at 1g for the whole second half of the trip and they they do a great you know they ex- they're not shy about explaining how that works because that's you know to understand what's going on you sort of have to understand that part of it but uh yeah it's, it's well you know, it's the- very realistic yeah, well, then it's space flight with just good old thrust engines. They don't have warp drives. They don't have any you know, magical drives, uh, I, you know, things that don't exist now. I mean, the technology that they are using basically exists now. I'm sure they have better engines and better fuels and whatever, but it's just good old thrust. You don't, uh, uh, you know, none of the futuristic stuff, uh, you know, warp drives, black holes or anything like that. I'm and reading the third book now, and they because they, they talk about the, the, the ship drives are called the Epstein drives. Mm-hmm. And that uh, they just talk at one point very briefly, and they just said that Mars, uh, Epstein lived on Mars, and he was the one that gave Mars the edge because he developed it. And he over there were two problems that he overcame: um, uh, constant long-term thrust, and they said the 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 fuel problem. And they don't elaborate on it, but it they you know the, uh, I assume it means that. Uh, he figured out a way of getting a source of fuel that was inexhaustible because they don't talk they'll talk about how important it is that they have to stock up on air and everything but they don't ever talk about fuel so I don't know what these things run on and they don't go into that but uh, yeah fuel uh, fuel is never mentioned air and water is constantly mentioned yeah so yeah interesting 
especially water, because one of the reasons why they're out there in the asteroid belt is they're they're harvesting water, uh, among other things, from the asteroids out there. Um, because on Cirrus Station, the ice freighter, because you know we mentioned in the intro, one of the ships was an ice freighter. So yeah, they go out and they harvest ice and they bring them back. Well, that gets blown up, so their water supply is limited, which causes you know already a tense situation to get worse. Um, but so yeah, you're in. Um, when you're on a, you know, out in space like that, you have to depend upon what's around you, and so, yeah. you know, it's it's harvest ice. We, you know, you, at first blush, you kind of go really, but you th- you think about it, you know, it's a source of water, it's abundant, but you have to go get it. That that is, uh, the, you know, mining the asteroid belt is extremely likely, actually, I think, because that's it's low hanging fruit, fruit, and it's, uh, you know, especially for. I don't know the word here, but you know the outer planets of the solar system doing anything, um, tapping to the resources of the asteroid belt can be critical to it. And I like the fact that this universe is in the solar system. You mentioned there were yeah. no warp drives. We're not doing interstellar space travel here. We're just bouncing back and forth between huh. Earth and wow. the Moon and Mars and the asteroid belt. Not not in season one. You're not. Well, that's true. <laughs> so okay. far. Well, and, you know, like you say, if you're going to, because once you get out past Earth on the planets themselves, water is not very abundant. There may be water on Mars, or I guess maybe they have confirmed it, but it's not like vast oceans of it that, because one of the essentials of life is water. And so that would become essential for colonizing the uh, solar system is to be able to, uh, you know, get water. And then you got to work on the whole food thing. But I think that might be a tad easier because uh, once you get water and some minerals and some stuff, you can start to make, you know, food-like substance. I might, has, might hesitate to call it food. I just uh, grow you know, potatoes. Well, yeah, just, there you go. Just think how difficult it would be for them to maintain everything. Like when when you're on Earth, like you know, every time you breathe out, you're breathing out gases and and uh, water vapor. And uh, but the Earth is a closed system, so that water vapor and that uh, CO two, uh, like it'll all be captured again. The CO two will be captured by plants. The water vapor will be eventually make its way to a clouds and precipitate into rain. On Ceres Station, like every time they open an airlock door to space. They're losing water vapor. They're losing gases. They're losing everything, and it's not coming back, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. The the that whole matter of fact, that's one of the I find really interesting depictions in this universe. The fact that Earth and Earthers, people who live in Earth, were born on Earth, um, are con- are held in contempt. They're like you had a perfect world and you effed it up, you know. <laughs> yeah. You had all you had abundant water, fell from the sky. You had clean air and blue skies, and you effed it up. And you know those of us out on Mars have had to build everything from scratch, and you know fight the elements. As we all know, space is not very hospitable, and you know. Um, or forgiving, you know. So the fact, the the way that they are, uh, they look upon the the people of Earth is quite interesting. Um, you guys, you know, we had to grow beyond Earth because you guys effed it up so bad that you know we basically couldn't stay there any longer. 
So rather than, you know, uh, most of the places, Earth is always treated with, you know, great honor because it was the home planet and it's where humans were from and whatever. This is kind of the first time I remember a universe where Earth, you know, the people from Earth are like Mm. pariahs. Well, they're kind of showing contempt for their parents, sort of, because uh, or the previous generation that, like you said, they had a good thing and they messed it up, and so they were forced. I, I think even if they were, I think eventually, even if we're not forced on Earth, we're going to go out into outer space to do it. But you know, it sounds like in this universe they were basically forced out to do it because between growing population and um, dwindling resources, they needed to do something and. Uh, and it's always an easy thing to look at somebody else and said, well, you know, you could have done this differently. You know, when you're in that moment, you can't always, or, you know, it's, it's um, Monday morning quarterbacking is so much easier. But, right. yeah, I do see why they want to look back and, you know, blame them because now they're out there having to struggle and survive and they don't have that cushy life that these other people do. Right. And so anytime something comes down from Earth, some law or, you know, new policy or you know we can't get you your water this week because of whatever you know that whole you you know earth sobs have it so good and you you know screwed that up so stay out of our systems and you know whatever it was it's like i said it's just a really interesting take on the whole relationship between earth and the people who live on earth or are born on earth versus humans that were, you know, living in well, elsewhere in the solar system. And each well, of the three groups is so uh, distinct from each other. Yes. Like in the in the second book, uh, the one character, Bobby, who's a, a Martian, she's on Earth for the first time, and she goes outside, and she has a panic attack because she's never been in a place where she wasn't under a dome, and all of a sudden she looks up and it's the sky, and she right. just can't. She just freaks out. Yeah, and, and, and like uh, an and, ocean. and the other thing, like yeah. when she, the guy who let her out through the door, knew what was going to happen to her. He was Terran, and he just waited and he let her back in. He's like, just take your time, relax. It happens to everybody, you know. Like, and he knows that the, that this is a common problem for Martians. That they've grown up all this time under under domes, and when they're under an Earth sky, they've like I guess it's very common that they freak out like that. Huh. Interesting. Oh, let's see. We had a couple of other um, interesting bits of uh, let's uh, spaceships. One of the big things that's going on that's going to play out in the story is is um, one of the terrorist groups is assisting with building a spaceship for the Mormons, um, which, near as I could tell, looked like the Statue of Liberty and gold, and which what? was really an interesting take on it. But as you find out, the the motivation behind that is is obviously there are population limits on closed systems such as Mars and the Belt, and probably even on Earth. And the Mormons are building a, their trans, their own ship to take them off to, you know, the stars where they can go forth and multiply to their heart's content. Um, so, and they they talk about uh, during the show where 
they're not even really sure where they're going. They're not sure where they're going is hospitable, and they don't really care because if they go and they all die, well, then that's just fine because, you know, it's one step farther or one step closer to finding the right place for them. So it was an interesting conversation um, that was going on regarding that whole purpose for that ship i'm you know not having read the books and not really knowing what's coming up in season two i'm sure that's coming back but it it did well play into the whole you know closed system um part of the universe well the one thing that makes me curious which i hope maybe is addressed in the books why the mormons i mean it it's not I mean, I know there's Mormons out there. You don't hear a lot about them. They're not one of the, you know, if you start naming off, you know, the world religions, it takes a while before you get around to them. Um, I wonder why they popped up in the book, if there's some significance to it, or if, uh, you know, and I know they do have this uh, history, you know, they moved uh, across the country. They came, I don't remember where they came from, but I know they moved across the country, eventually kind of uh, settling for the most part in, in Utah. Uh, so they do kind of have this history, I guess, of searching and seeking, um, you know, frontier life and all that. But it just struck me that, you know, it just seemed like a, I don't want to say an odd choice, but it certainly got my attention. I think you're right. I think that's why they, they use the Mormons, because they do have that history of kind of like all picking up and then moving to somewhere else. Right. Um, yeah. I, I assume they don't really go into that in in the second and third books that I've read yet. Um, they do, they do cover other religions, and there is, uh, there's one religion that they talk about, the unif- Unified Humanity religion or something, where it's just kind of like a new religion. Um, but they have uh, Methodists and Catholics and uh, Muslims. Yeah, because the third one deals with a like a bunch of religious people. Um, but yeah, like for the most part, world religions that exist today still exist then um, but they don't uh, really spend a lot of time explaining about the uh, why the Mormons were going to go out there um, they just said it was a generation ship it was, I, and I don't think they said how long it was going to take them to get there it was, but it was going to be a long long time Yeah, somehow I remember a hundred years but maybe that was yeah. just a, a number that they pulled out for the conversation so yeah but that's that was interesting the idea that somebody is trying to get away from the earth mars belt situation and just go do their own thing well i mean you know in a story like this you're going to have all sorts of motivations you got political motivations you got personal motivations and you know you need something because it's not always well sometimes i I want to say it's not always about politics, but I think eventually it does come back down to politics. But there are other things that motivate people, you know, beyond you know power and things like that. And I think that uh, hopefully they're trying to address it in the fact that there are people who care about humanity uh, more so than the power and the things that go with it. And it would be interesting to see if there's something that develops along this line, you know, a, a secondary route for humans to follow rather than just political wars and everything there if you're building a world it's kind of an interesting way to approach it oh yeah and you know that whole lending credence to the universe I mean it's just a little bit of reality you know that we can 
relate to? I mean, that's a piece of our current existence that is being projected into the future that, you know, makes it feel familiar. So, yeah, that's kind of, it's it's an interesting take on everything. A um, couple of other things we got to talk about. One of which is uh, the distress call at the very beginning of this season. Um, that was an interesting little thing. If, you know, distress calls come... And by law, the you know if you hear hear one, you are required to go respond to it. Well, <laughs> the economics of doing that is you know never in your favor. So the the ship that received it actually was trying to sweep it under the rug and pretend it, they'd never heard it and and whatever. Um, but it was I found it interesting how much information could be gotten from that tiny little. Um, distress call. There wasn't a lot, but it, the fact that you could replay it and enhance it and really focus in on it and whatever. So they finally did that. And, and tied into that is when they're kind of half stranded out there in space, um, they actually have to go outside of their ship and kick the antenna to get it lined up so they could send their own distress signal. I'm like, oh yeah, that was brilliant too. The idea that all this high-tech equipment, you know, floating around in space and and what do you do? You go out there and kick something to to make it work. Well, yeah, even in high-tech, brute force is still an option. I know. I I I just loved that scene where all the, you know, all the fine tuning and and that was a brilliant piece of science as well um, because at one point when they were trying to repair that antenna somebody takes a tool out there and just happens to let it go and you see it go flying off at you know half the speed of light or some darn speed but I mean it was it just flew off and they were like shit you know yeah that's what happens when you don't tether your tools so um, interesting little tip to the realities of working in space well, working anywhere, believe me, I've been up on top of some stuff working, and you, uh, your wrench slips out of your hand, and you watch it fall to the floor, and I have to go get that now. So, no, it's a, a reality whether you're in space or on Earth. So. True, but at least on Earth you can retrieve it. In space, it's this gone. This is true. Yeah, it's gone. Okay, the one uh, bit of technology we got to talk about as well is um, the eyeball sp- camera spy thing. There is a, a a spy, and everybody knows he's a spy. Um, it's not like he's hiding it, um, but he has embedded in his eye um, a camera that's you know got zoom lenses and heads-up displays, and apparently some sort of send-receive function too, because um, not only can he take pictures and or zoom in on things. Um, he's accessing data about the things that he's seeing, and that's kind of an interesting take on, you know, cybernetics. Um, it's that's really kind of scary. I mean, that's Google Glass on your cornea. Yeah. Well, and it's also too, you know. So apparently, they haven't come out and said it, but I think for the most part, what they can say is in the future, you can probably kiss your personal privacy goodbye because well, okay. if. If people are wearing these things and you, know, you you go into a bathroom, a locker room, you go out in public, you know, a smoky bar somewhere where you're hanging out with your mistress and somebody can, you know, record this easily and, uh, you know, unnoticed. Which is already um, happening. So, you know, well, this is true. There's cameras everywhere. But yeah. when it's, you know, somebody that can walk up 
to you or, you know, you know, so yeah, I mean, it's already happening, but it just seems like, um, you know, it's anything's up for grabs. Now. Speaking of privacy too, all those glass displays, you get zero privacy. Everybody knows what you're looking at. I mean, well, and then well, you that, and then you uh, that reminded me too that uh, the housing on the asteroid, um, their walls are glass. Now they either have curtains or maybe they can make them opaque. But I, I, I just I, I kind of found the design of those things kind of interesting. They look like. The first thing that struck me was um, tractor trailers uh, stacked on top of one another, which I suppose is you know efficient uh, housing. But I just the, the look of them; they were big, square, and boxy. You know, and those of us out here on the plains are going to chafe at that. But if you were if you're living in that type of environment, that's oh, yeah. just the way it is. I mean, people. I personally couldn't live in Hong Kong. You know, that's just too many people and too small of a space. But people in Hong Kong get by just fine. So. And that whole privacy thing and the glass walls, I mean, if that's the way it is, you soon get used to that. Well, I guess it, you know, the glass walls would, it, it takes a small space, but it makes it feel bigger because if you, you know, turn it on so you can see the outside, it feels like the room is bigger. So I think there's a psychological component to that. And when you're crammed in there that tight and everyone is kind of up in everyone else's business, privacy is kind of something you may try to achieve, but don't hold your breath. Yeah. And if people, <laughs> I get, going back to the the eyeball camera thingy, um, you got to wonder if something at that level is illegal. Um, given that he's a spy and a nasty kind of slimy dude, um, the fact that he has such a thing that apparently nobody else has that I've seen so far um, makes you wonder if that isn't some sort of illegal technology that's not kosher with most people. Well, it, it didn't reference it a lot. Now, um, and he tried to hide it. I mean, it's not like he was going around saying, "Hey, guys, I got this thing in my eye and shows this." So, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they're trying to respect privacy. And, you know, the thing is, human beings we do like. You know, we're social animals, but we also need our space too. And when you're, you know, crammed together like that, I guess you have to take it where you can. Which but. I got a kick out of too. Speaking of your personal space, one piece of technology that apparently survives in 200 years into this universe is headphones. <laughs> and I do mean big old can <laughs> headphones, like you know Beats yeah. or Bose or whatever. Um, yeah, it's like wow. Okay. Well. I could kind of understand that because if you're in a, you know, you could have, because right now, like at work, I wear bone conducting headphones, which allow me to hear. But if you're in a place where there's people around you all the time, there's constant noise, you may want over the ear headphones just to block out the sound and give you that, the uh, illusion of a little privacy. Because if you can kind of maybe close your eyes and you can't hear the outside world, you can kind of create this little uh, space within yourself that you can you can hide just to get away from the you know humdrum or the you know the the maelstrom of life around you there. So it, maybe it's just a little way to create just a little slice of privacy in amongst the sea of humanity. Yeah, I'm not sure about the science of noise canceling headphones, but all of the ones I can think of are over the ear type. So you know, maybe that's just the science of trying to block out noise and, and create your own little environment. Um, can't My sister uh, has noise-canceling headphones for traveling, 
and she has both in ear ones and then over the head over okay. the so they do like, have uh, in ear I wasn't sure yeah well you uh, see, those it, things are freaky how well they work yeah <laughs> like they, she has the ones she has anyways are bows and if you're wearing them well, she showed them to me and you turn up the turned up the TV louder and louder and louder until I could finally hear it and then I took them out I couldn't believe how loud the television was right yeah <laughs> it was she calls them baby canceling headphones because she wears them when she's on planes so nice she just uh, <laughs> well you see if in the future I had the option I would probably have something implanted because I do like to listen to my music and podcasts and audiobooks or whatever but I don't always like to have this thing on my head so I would just have it implanted so I could play it whenever I want um, and I'd still be able to hear what's going on around me but um, you know like I say there maybe you do want something where you can block out the world around you I've got a note here about um, medical procedures and prosthetics, and that was interesting too. Speaking of uh, you know the eyeball thing that may or may not have been illegal technology, but at the very beginning, um, one of the the belters is working and has a what amounts to an industrial accident, loses an arm, and they were talking about you know the fact that he's been there long enough to have earned a proper prosthetic arm you know and and all these ones where the you know the nerves tie in and and um you know it was built by belters and and somebody comes by and says well don't you want that new gel stuff that they've come up with it basically just regrows your arm he's like no way i don't want none of that stuff coming from mars i want some good belter technology that we got the best prosthetics in the solar system here you know that kind of stuff um which was interesting both from a what was appealing and what wasn't, which was very parochial, um, and the fact that these types of accidents were happening often enough that this was an advanced technology that they had, um, and and the whole, you know, being having to earn um, a better, you know, the the quality of of arm that you were getting replaced. Um, depended on how long you'd been working for the asteroid or for the belter company or whoever it was was covering your health insurance apparently well Um, and then you said that and i kind of missed it but i just happened to think of it now you said this gel that could regrow your arm i just got the wondering is this going to be kind of was that just a slight teaser perhaps of some sort um because Okay, a prosthetic arm. Hopefully, you would know the you know the mechanics of it. You could understand it. But if there's this gel that will regrow your body, you're trusting that the gel will regrow your body the way that it was. Could it be used so in some nefarious way that it would regrow it, but then alter you in the process? Anything can be used nefariously. Yeah. So, is it possible? Uh, yeah. Sure, but you yeah. know, um, most of that stuff. You know, is going to be tied into your DNA, especially because right. if if you're trying to replace something and for, uh, you know, it's almost like a transplant. You don't want it to reject. You want it to be your own tissues. You want it to be your own DNA. So, uh, right. But you know, it just makes me wonder if at some point that could be used as, and maybe they were worried about it being used as political leverage or something like that. That um, I don't know. I'm just. Yeah, I got the impression. Yeah, I got the impression during that conversation it had nothing to do with the actual technology, other than the not invented here syndrome. 
It's like, okay. you know, us belters, we can take care of ourselves. We've got these great limbs. You know, those Martians over there invented that stuff, and I don't trust those damn Martians, so I don't want that stuff. You know, <laughs> whether, it's a, whether it's a better option or not, I just don't want it because it's Mars. So. Right. Well, and that kind of, I was going to try and bring us around to the big blue elephant in the room, uh, that that thing that you dis- yeah, you discover uh, I think you see it in the first uh, episode and then it comes into play in the last few episodes that big blue spoiler uh, yeah spoiler <laughs> um, yeah there's this big blue thing and I don't mean cookie monster either that is it's something we're trying to figure out we do what- not know what it is if you watch the show and not read the books and I don't know if the books are any different I'm not that far but you do not have a clue what the hell that thing is other than scary well it looks uh, there's a few things you can figure out which really doesn't answer much it looks nope. like it's some sort of biomedical yep. or bio thing it's organic it, yeah yeah or semi organic in a way because it it seems to bond with humans and doesn't from what we've seen so far in its early stages anyway doesn't seem to be good for them um and it seems to be have been manufactured mm-hmm. um it looks like it was done well it, it points to this the Julie Mao it looks like her father had something to do with it um and you, the last episode, you're left with some of these dangling tendrils, which will you know, lead into the next season. But, you know, what is this conspiracy that's going on? Who's trying to do what for what reason? Um, you, you get the feeling that they're trying to destabilize this whole. Well, obviously, they're trying to destabilize the whole situation because in the uh, early on, you know, the, the ice ship is blown up and well, there's evidence pointing to Mars and Mars says it wasn't us. And so, you know, you get the whole finger pointing thing going on. It just seems like it's the right situation to stir things up, get everybody agitated and then move in with your own uh, agenda to try and, you know, seize control or steer it towards your advantage. So I don't know, is this going to be a political movement? Is it an industrial thing where they're stirring it up so that they can sell more munitions or sell medicine? We don't know. If if you're watching the show, you don't... Those are the questions that you don't have answers to. I suspect the books may, you know, answer some of that. I assume season two will dive into that as well. The first um, book goes into more of what the uh, proto-molecule is and where they believe it came from. Like, they, they don't know anything for sure. Um, but in in the first season of the TV show, it's very much left at, like, they don't have a clue. Right. Uh, yeah, although they, they do they do refer to uh, the the uh, Phoebe Station incident, which is a in the book, that's an important part of how the whole thing gets started, uh, and they just mention it briefly in the in the TV show. Yeah, because when I was reading some synopsis and stuff, they said Phoebe Station. I had to stop and think and go back because yeah, that wasn't really elaborated on. No, no, fully. and it was purposely done that way too. It was this kind of this rumored thing bad thing happened at phoebe station and that's all you know yeah. i mean that's well that's and i all. and i don't remember phoebe station is that a mars or is that an earth uh phoebe is a, a planet or sorry a, a moon of uh jupiter or saturn i can't remember which one okay and in the in the book um 
that's where they first encounter the protomolecule. And when uh, when they do, they figure out that Phoebe is not even a moon. It was sent here. Uh, and I can't remember how, but they determined it was actually fired at the Earth and missed and got captured and became a moon of, again, Jupiter or Saturn, sent like two billion years in the past. You know, okay, I've been watching, what have I been watching? NASA's Unexplained Files or some stupid thing on Science Channel. And is is Phoebe the one that, like, spins the wrong way? Yes. Yeah, there's like one... it's different. Yeah, you're right. All the other planets and moons in the solar system... I think you're right. It's spin in one direction, and it spins the other it way. It spins, yeah. It goes the other way around the yeah. around the planet. So, yeah, okay, that's interesting. Well, that's yeah. a tantalizing bit of information where, you know, I felt like reading the books anyway, but now this has just sucked me in yeah. like a black hole. Yeah, so, I see, know. See, I, I was telling these guys earlier, it says I had the great experience. You know, I, I watched the first season and went, holy cow, I need more quick books now. <laughs> so uh got onto iBooks and downloaded some of the books and started reading a few of them and then went to the Barnes & Noble and actually saw the size of these books on the shelves and went, oof. <laughs> we tend to find these series that have these massive books with that, you know, <laughs> four, four or five books in the series. It's like, man, I just want to read one book one time. <laughs> See, when I was reading the books and when I saw the, the – a little, kind of less so when I saw the TV show because they don't go into the origin of it. But I kept thinking over and over because they keep saying over and over about how this is a weapon and, you know, the, the protomolecule is a weapon and weapon. But, like, well – like a germ, right? A, a germ could be a weapon, but a germ is just a germ doing germ stuff, right? Until you make it a <laughs> so, weapon, yeah. Well, yeah, but to the germ, it's still just trying to do its thing, right? It's right. not. It's just. It's like a tool, right? Yeah, a stick is a um, stick until you hit somebody with it. You know. Exactly, and then Holden in the third in the book that I'm reading, he makes uh, he comes up with this analogy that I thought was perfect. He said, "A microwave to a monkey." Who knows what it is? It, it could be, oh, it's a box that I stand on so I can reach something that's higher. He's like, oh, I, the door opens up and the light comes on. Oh, it's a light. Oh, when I turn, push this button, it hums and it burns my hand inside. Oh, it's a weapon. And he said, the one thing you can be sure of is that no monkey ever heated up a burrito in a microwave. So the whole idea is that it could very well be that this protomolecule is intended for something completely different that we don't even conceptualize how this thing could even work in the first place but we just see different elements of it and keep thinking that well it's a weapon or it's you know it's meant for these different things and we might not even have the tools that it would take to realize what the thing even fully is right right yeah we're oh we're good at that we see something and we make an assumption and we start (laughs) doing stuff with it only to find out later that oh my god we really didn't understand it did we yeah uh, sort of like, um, um, uh, oh shoot, the book we read where they intercept the space station. I hate it. Rendezvous with Rama. Yeah, yeah, there we go, that one. Uh, you know, we make all these assumptions, and you know, one of them was, hey, they're here to see us. Like, no, they're not. Um, and so, yeah, we're making all these assumptions. And, you know, while you were saying that, I got to thinking the name of the first book in this series is called Le- Leviathan Wakes. Well, I had to look up the word Leviathan to make sure, but basically, you know, it's a, uh, uh, a sea monster 
you know, that hides under the ocean. So it sounds like, you know, Leviathan Wake sounds like there's going to be, we're on the edge of waking something here, which we may not necessarily like. So, um, you know, I think there's a, a clue there in that first book as to possibly what might be coming here. You know, may, and maybe it'll be one of those things that right now people are trying to use this to stir you know, uh, uh, aggravate the situation between Earth, Mars, and the belt. It may be one of those things that they all three will have to pull together to save humanity from this thing. I have no knowledge of the book, so this is just my speculation. But it would be kind of interesting to see that twist where everyone's fighting each other and all of a sudden they realize that they have to set their differences aside to deal with a bigger threat. Yeah, that's that. that is cool. Yeah, so like I said, it now it just makes me okay. You know, that's the thing about stories. You hear it, the beginning of it, and you speculate what you think it might be, and then you want to read the book to see if you're smart or if you're just pulling things out of your butt. Uh, yeah, there's a lot in this expanse, and I suspect we're going to come back to this one again, whether it's in season two of the, the TV show or when we all finish the books, but. There's just a ton of stuff here, and it's a really, really good story um, that's set in a really solid universe that's got a lot of technology and, and you know, without having techno babble, um, and it's just really, really engrossing. I mean, it's, you you start watching it or you start reading it, and it's like, man, I need more. Well, yeah, and we didn't even cover, you know, there's still some things here on our list that we haven't gotten to. Um, you know, there's things like um, uh, you had navigation by iPad, you had public transportation, which, you had... Uh, doesn't change much in 200 years. <laughs> no, it's still god-awful. Yeah. Uh, crowded and whatever. Uh, and then there was a, a brief scene in there where you had zero-G sex. Well, you know, that could really be you know, Which was quite interesting. I mean, the filming of that must have been... Uh, Fun, but what was really cool was, was um, you know, halfway through that or whatever, all of a sudden gravity reappeared, and you're like, "Ow!" <laughs> well, yeah, and not to delve too deeply into that subject, but you know, here we've learned how to use gravity uh, for towards certain purposes. You'd have to rethink things if you're just floating there. You know, it's going to be a, a different learned process. No doubt. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just going to let that one hang there. You people figure it out for yourself. Hang being the optimal word. But, right. Um, so, you know, we've kind of reached the point here where uh, was there any – there's lots of stuff in here. What? So I'm assuming everyone's kind of got a piece of tech that they want. Um, Jeff, was there something in there that just really, you know, you got to have or – Hmm. I don't know. Like, just to have that whole world, like I'd love to oh. – to live okay. in that whole world. Okay, Jeff takes the easy answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Julie, did you have anything that? Uh... Go to 3D. The okay. whole yeah, I... yeah, throwing your displays around, but especially that whole go to 3D. Take this into a virtual projection where I can explore it from various angles and you know get a different look at things. Um, I also think that's reasonably close i mean that's there's nothing immensely yeah. difficult about doing that other than we're just not there yet well yeah i think it's uh close it's the tech to get it to that point is the only thing the hardware uh to get it to that point is the only thing holding us back no it's the and data yeah. 
you need the data. I suspect we already have the hardware, but you, everything that we have put into text and images to this point has been 2D. Um, so trying to convert everything we have to 3D is an immense process. Right. Yeah. Well, and you, you sort of said what I was thinking. It's just a ubiquitous slab of glass. Um, you know, you don't have a, apparently they've done away at the frame, and I'm really curious about the power supply because you don't see a – maybe the thing is a battery. Who knows? Um but that just the the thing that um, can kind of be what you want it to be. They may come in different sizes and forms, but it's the the one thing that uh, you know you just carry around. And like I say, if you want to put it on the wall, it's fine. And so um, yeah, so that's what I kind of want is just the uh, you know your slab of glass that'll become what you want it to be. Nice. Yes. Well, that wraps up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out at scifitechtalk.com where there's some cool space junk available for purchase. Pop into the forums there and take part in the conversation or follow us on Twitter at scifitechtalk. If you have any ideas or comments, please send them to greetings at scifitechtalk.com. And reviews on iTunes are always welcome. So, Jeff, where can people find you? People can follow me on Twitter at broncosire. That's S-Y-E-R. And, Julie, what about you? People can find me on Twitter as well, at Julie Keel, J-U-L-I-E-K-U-E-H-L, and links to the other blogs, podcasts, and whatever else I've got going on can be found at about.me slash Julie Keel. Um, and I can be found on Twitter at DSC Chipman, and I have my about.me page at about.me slash, uh, slash Mike McPeak, that's M-C-P-E-E-K. And I wanted to throw out a little teaser that uh, uh, I also do a Geekiest Show Ever, and on uh, this upcoming episode, we're going to have J.F. Dubowan, who's been on this episode, and we're going to talk to him about his book, God in the Shed, and whatever else our little geeky hearts desire. So if you want to go over there and check that out, um, it's at Geekiest showever.com and uh, next week we're going to be covering the book Ultima which is the sequel to Proxima Um, in Proxima we discover ancient alien artifacts on the planet uh, Peradua hatches that allow us to step from light from light years across space as if we were stepping into another room. The universe opens up for us. Now in Ultima, consequences of this new freedom make themselves felt, and we discover that there are minds in the universes that are billions of years old and have plans for us, for, uh, for some of us. But as we learn in the true nature of the universe, we also discover that we have countless paths all meeting in the present and that our future is terrifyingly infinite. It's time for us to fight back and take control. There's nothing scary or complicated about that at all. Um, (laughs) But that's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future.